This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Um, Before I get started, it is the 99th minute of One Heat Minute. And my guest today uh, is a a sort of improv comedy specialist that has been in a bunch of stuff you might have seen. You would have seen him possibly in Orange is the New Black or Search Party. Um, I'm excited because he's part of the Upright Citizens Brigade or UCB in New York. And one of my fondest memories ever of visiting New York was like stumbling into the UCB and seeing like murderous rows of comic lineups that you see for like five bucks, and um, which is amazing. But what is great about this show is that heat obsessives in the world reach out when they hear about it, and that's awesome. Um, this particular heat obsessive and uh, improv comedy um, specialist uh, has made a film, a short film called The Spirit of Heat. And in that short film, which is, I think, part of a collaboration with him and his friends because they're in the middle of making another film, he said something that I had never picked up about this movie, which I can't wait for him to explore. And it's a really exciting Ooh. revelation. So you get excited with new people just bringing their new lens on this movie. And that's one of the joys of it. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Mr. Connor Ratliff to One Hit Minute. Connor, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Oh, I am excited and honored to be a part of this. Uh, I, I learned of your podcast uh, on Twitter and someone else uh, uh, pointed it out to me and they're like, have you seen this? And I immediately started just devouring episodes and uh, which it's a it's a it's an insane podcast to binge listen to because <laughs> it's very long. But each episode is about a very short thing that is about a very long thing. Uh, it's great. Um, and yeah, that film uh, I had actually been making uh, a few years ago. I made this weird Christmas special called The Spirit of Ratliff. And while we were filming it, I started talking about the film Heat. And one of the people who was filming it turned his camera off and he's like, this is boring. But the other camera guy was like, no, no, this is interesting. And I talked about Heat for so much that when we were done, I said, give me that footage. I'm going to make it into its own <laughs> thing called the spirit of Heatliff, uh, which is a little uh, – uh, and it's, it's – I think the thing that, that I said, uh, I'm assuming it was the thing about the time structure of the film, The right? time structure of the film. I had never and, thought about it in those terms. When this movie came out in 95, I remember it, I remember like Casino was the film people were excited about. That, that was like yes. the big dog and has ended up kind of of the two becoming the, the lesser sort of cult film. Yes. Like Casino is the film that people sort of discover and they're like, oh, this is good. But Heat is the classic from that year. Yes. And I saw Heat in the theater right before I was getting ready to go to school in England. I was going to drama school in Liverpool. And... I and Heat came out a, a couple months later. It came out, I think, in January of '96, and it was during the period where I just, you know, I'd moved to another country and I was so homesick. And what I found was I wanted to see Heat again, but also it brought me. Uh, I saw it four times in the theater on original release, which I've never done that with any <laughs> other movie. And part of it was that when I was in the movie theater, it was like three hours where my sense memory was like, "Oh, I'm back home two months ago," <laughs> yes. you know. And the fourth time I saw it. When you see a three-hour movie, you know that's that, and you see it that many times in the matter of like a month and a half or so. The fourth time I watched it was the most like analytical that I've ever been watching a movie, where I just started looking at not I wasn't emotionally involved that viewing. I was just like a a computer process. I was like my view screen was like the Terminator, what the Terminator sees, just processing like what's in every frame, kind of like what you do in every episode of this podcast. And I started counting. It starts at night. And then it goes to day and I'm like, and then you see a little bit at night and it's, it is a, it is the last week in the life of Neil McCauley. Oh my goodness. Uh, when I, your little spirit of hate lift, uh, said that I was like, oh my God. And you see a little bit of in a hundred, every day and every night in a yeah. hundred episodes, more than a hundred episodes that have been recorded. We just never stumbled upon that. And I was like. 
as soon as you said I'd love to be on the show, I'm like, I must get Connor on the show before <laughs> like before some of these episodes happen because I he's stumbled on it and it was a you know it's just been floating out there in the world and it hasn't been a reading of the film that I've ever thought of before. Because my my original impression of it was like, oh, this is like a heist film, but it's also kind of one of those like. Robert Altman films where it's like sh- like shortcuts or Nashville where you, see, you know you see all these little side characters and to me it felt uh, scattershot almost where it's like oh why did we spend so much time with you know this character or that character yes and then by the fourth one I was like well it has that but it's also incredibly disciplined and structured <laughs> while looking chaotic you know yes yeah. <laughs> Connor is looking Connor is looking at me going. Oh my god, this movie. He's just like his 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 hands are on his head. He's ready to go. So I thought it was kind of kind of important to get this episode in with Connor at at the 99th episode. So we have that perspective because the next two episodes are the 100th episode featuring the cinematographer Dante Spinotti. So you oh, guys can look forward to that, including so Connor who's on a rapid binge through this podcast. Um, and uh, followed up by uh, the amazing actor from movies like Predator and Mandy, and also a, like a great television director in his own right, who got his start directing TV with Michael Mann on Miami Vice. Bill Duke is on Ooh. the show, um, so and he's getting to talk really around that incredible Dennis Haysbert minute where we see uh, up and coming. So this is where we are. We're going to watch this minute together, Connor and I. And uh, it starts, as I said, with Henry Rollins' pursed lips, blue steel moment. Then we're going to finish off uh, in the in that little cafe. I think I've got a. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna read out. Um, I think the name of the cafe. I'm gonna find it in my. It's a friend of mine put it in my Instagram mentions. They uh, were, were actually at this cafe and said, "Blake, this is you know a pilgrimage for you. You must go to this place." Uh, where are we? There should be heat, heat tours of LA. I don't know if anyone <laughs> in Los Angeles does this, but you should be able to go to all the locations all and right. experience it. I feel like I feel like we're just one step away from that actually happening. I'm gonna bring, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find that. I'm gonna bring it up um, in just in a couple of minutes. But let's go into this minute, and Connor and I are gonna watch it. You guys are gonna listen along, and then we're gonna come back and talk about it. Recognize the grill man? Yeah. Awesome. Deep black. How's with Bellby Rush? They got my break yet, man. Cisco and Poncho didn't show. Pull out the garbage. Knock out the back. Take your break later. Piece of shit. Pick up! Where the hell is he? I want to check the slot for a work car. So did I. Yeah. It's, it's a good a, minute. It's a good minute. I oh. mean, there are no bad minutes. That's the great thing. <laughs> no. there are, it's just it's where it is on the spectrum of how good, how good the minute. And that's a good minute. It is good because um, I find that the little... Uh, there's quite a few reaction shots that happen as like these beautiful little fade out moments um, in each, you know, I just did one, uh, the 96 episode with Zach Hepburn. Um, he's an Aussie film critic and he's a film programmer and runs one of the great um, institutions, theatre called the Astor Theatre in Melbourne um, in, in, mm-hmm. in, South, um, in Southern Australia in Victoria. And he got the, he got the reaction shots of Vincent Hanna and... Um, uh, Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley, so Pacino and De Niro, at the end of the coffee house scene. So he uh-huh. got. The, so it's there's no more dialogue, but it's just that sort of smile slash pursed lips. And I just we, yeah. we get this in that previous scene. It's very sort of tense scene. You see Wayne grows manipulation, but here at the beginning you get Hugh Benny looking over at Van Sant like I don't know what to do, and then Wayne yeah. Grow just sort of smiling his charm. He's totally in control. And that's yeah. where we kick this minute off. It's a, it's a real, uh, it's like a Bugs Bunny expression almost that Wayne Grove have. It's a, it's a real, ain't I a stinker kind of look. He's just like so, he's, he's so pleased with himself. What a bad boy he is. You oh, know? He, 
he is. He's taking a perverse pleasure. But this is what's so funny about him. He's so... He's having such a good time. And he's the nearer... He's nearer to death than most. Yeah. Like, surely he has double-crossed other people before. That's what I always think. The more I watch Kevin Gage, he's having such a fun time. But he's definitely done this before. He's yeah, just flying I, at the seat of his pants. He does not know what's going to happen next. Yeah. Where does he get that confidence? I don't know. I don't it's know. It's tremendous. It's, well, you know, in the subplot of this movie, he could be a serial killer who's just been getting away with it. So he's just happily getting away with stuff. Yeah. And I think in that character, I think, was part of what I originally perceived. He's such a chaotic character that I think it. my original impression of the movie was that it was chaotic. Yes. Uh, and it really is a movie that the movie isn't chaotic, but there's chaos contained within it. But yeah. the movie is <laughs> disciplined and structured and... Uh, it, it's it, the movie is content to let you believe that it is chaotic, but it knows exactly what it's doing. <laughs> and then we uh, move, and then we move over. You speaking of one moment of chaos to another, is mm-hmm. where at this restaurant, and we're waiting. At this moment, we kind of really don't know what we're waiting for, but the, all the guys are finally in suits again. So we're like, oh, okay, something something is a little bit odd here. We see Chris, you know, the picture of concentration. And I love mm-hmm. here, there's a massive contrast. And you don't see it in, you know, until you analyze the minute. There's a beautiful moment. Neil just sort of is looking for Treo, turns around, and he spots Donald Breeden, so Dennis Haysbert, and he just makes him in like one second. And he turns mm-hmm. around to Chris and goes, see who the real man is? And Chris yeah. has a, like, takes his glasses off and has like a real intense look at him for like a, like it feels like five or six seconds of the minute. And he's like, no. Yeah. Uh, it, it is interesting how much in these little moments, the characters are so distinctly defined that I think when I've watched this in the past, I've always been sort of fixated on on Val Kilmer in this scene because he looks troubled in this scene. Like he looks exhausted. He looks like he's uh, like it almost looks like we've we have in in servicing all of the various stories while we've been spending time with Vincent Hanna and Neil. We've been spending time with away from Val Kilmer. It feels like his last eight hours were rough. Like yes. whatever happened, it feels like <laughs> he's been going through it. And we just, you don't have time in the movie to see everything that happens with no. everybody. No. And, um, and watching it now, it's interesting how, you know, the, the three of those characters each have a different degree of urgency to what's about to happen with, with um, De Niro obviously being he's he's a he's a little fidgety he's concerned but he's not panicking but he is looking around he's 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 worried and he's trying and he's figuring like even his even his spotting the uh, in uh, at the grill uh, chef uh, the grill cook is not just a casual observation it seems like it's one in the moment but then we'll come to realize. He, it's part of the discipline. He is planning ahead. He's looking. He's just. He's, he's, he's like. He's put that on the plan as a backup instantly. He's, he's looking for fire exits, basically. Yes. You know? Yes. Kilmer is completely. He's just. Ugh, he's dr- like he needs this more yes. than the other two. Uh, Absolutely. And it's great because he's contrasted with. Michael Torito, so Tom Sizemore in the scene. And Ty- Sizemore's like, relax. He's got both of his arms spread out. He's like, yeah. He, yeah. Rub- <laughs> he rubs his hands together. Like, <laughs> he does that little, like, hot diggity kind of move. <laughs> he is fine. Like, yeah. he's not that nervous. No. And he's the one who's, like, choosing to do this even though he doesn't need to. Yes. And he has the energy of a man who's, like, excited about the day they're about to have. Whereas the other two are concerned, you know? Um, it's also interesting because this is one of those minutes where, uh, there are some things said that I looked them up on a, on a website that has like the dialogue from the, I I could have just turned on subtitles or something, but it has lines that I'm sure in my mind, I've never really, it's almost like watching a foreign movie without the subtitles. There are lines that I know I've never actually processed what the names are that are being said. Yes. Like when he says, you recognize the grill man? No. Folsom, D-Block, housed with Doby Rush. Yes. Housed with Doby Rush. I've, I've never processed the name Doby <laughs> Rush. I've just known he's talking about when they, he knows him from prison. And what's good is, for, for everyone who's uh, a casual viewer... Uh, yes. For, for everyone who's a casual viewer, 
Like Dobie Rush means yeah. nothing. How are we spell? How's it spelling Dobie in the script? I'm gonna Google it. I guarantee you, it's a real criminal. O B I E. Dobie Rush. Like this is some I think live. Like Dobie Gillis, like the old uh, the old sitcom uh, that Bob Denver was in. Um, <laughs> housed with Dobie Rush. <clears throat> and then, like three seconds after that, we're in the kitchen. And he says, "I ain't got my break yet," and. <laughs> Bud Court says Cisco and Poncho didn't show up. So we have three characters <laughs> yes. dropped in a matter of seconds that are part of the if they start, you know, if if Michael Mann decides to pull a James Cameron avatar and announces <laughs> the series are they still working on that that book, that that novel that is supposed to happen in the heat universe, right? The, the prequel book. Something? The prequel book. Um yeah, I it Dobie says Rush, that, it says that, yeah, these are all characters that are in play. 100%. 100% they're in play. And Don Braden's Sis- a, a character in there too, for sure. Yeah. Cisco and Pancho didn't show up. <laughs> Cisco and Pancho. What, what are they doing? Why didn't they show up? Are they together? Are they in cahoots? Are they Is crooks? there another? Are they, yeah. are they crooks or are they just random like yeah. employees that, that are just being able to bend the rules because they know that poor Don Braden has to turn up. Otherwise, he's, you know, otherwise he gets bounced back to jail. It almost feels like... Disney was going to, at some point, when they run out of other things to consume, they're going to buy heat, and then we'll get a heat movie every year. Uh, uh, well, I, as soon I, as the... Yeah. I would just say this. I hope they don't, for the sake I of hope podcasting. They <laughs> I the hope sake. they don't. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> this will be well, a never... Have, yeah, the, the number of minutes they can add to your workload. Yeah, uh, it's significant. If they did a web series, it could add 20 episodes, 20 episodes <laughs> to um, but, but yeah, no, the, the ones that get me is you don't ever think about, um, we haven't really had to think about, and we've talked a lot about in this show, you know, about the rich, uh, the rich character backstories that man sort of makes his actors write for themselves, or he sort of prescribes, this is where I think you've been. And then they go to the jails and they do interviews with cro- real crooks to sort of, you know, see if they can be a sponge to any sort of you know, um, tics or affectations or just know these things. But it's like one of those first times where it's like Folsom B-Wing exists. And I guarantee, and I, I can't find him right now in some Googling, but I'm sure people listening kind of know, but Adobe Rush will be a Chicago criminal from the 1970s. Will probably be the real name of a Chicago criminal from the 1970s. And in which case he's then just sort of layering in some of that real texture that these are guys that the real Neil McCauley would have known. And sort of man's just taking that sort of elegant dramatic license to sort of chuck a few things in there. And, and that's what it is. You know, it wouldn't be surprised if Neil McCauley's real partner's name might not be like Dobie Rush or something like that as we're talking about it. Yeah. A quick Google search. The first thing that obviously comes up is the heat quote. Yeah. That's the thing that comes up first. But the second thing is there are two people who with Facebook profiles named Dobie Rush. Uh, neither of them have photos. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to make a wild guess that both of these were made by heat fans or <laughs> there's someone out there who's creating Facebook files of obscure characters within the, the heat universe. Well, and, and another game to play at home folks is, um, for the next few times you get your coffee and they ask what your name is, Dobie Rush, Cisco and Punch, um, uh, need to be alternate names at Starbucks for you over the next few weeks while you're after you're listening to this show. So go nuts with it. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's such an, it's interesting because this is, you know, there's the, uh, cause I wasn't sure when I was looking at which minute we were going to look at, I told you I, I had, because of the various frame rates and things like that, there were different minutes that I was looking at. And within a very, uh, short span of time, like this is one of the minutes that is tense, but calm, yes. you know, they're just sitting there. There's no immediate threat, but there's a, a lot of dread in in this minute yes uh because it's what we it starts with uh menace because we see uh we see henry rollins we see wayne grow and that's the threat of like trouble is going to be caused and then we we cut to the people who are going to be at the receiving end of that trouble yes and uh so we it, it makes the and then they you know they're uh concerned because they have this you know uh, there's the, the thing about, and I, I don't think I ever processed this line either The they're talking about, um, Trejo and they say, uh, where the hell is he? I want to check the slot for the work car. So did I, uh, 
that they they were that's that they were looking to see where the car was parked, right? For the yeah. So the slot that, for the work car is they've determined where the work car is going to be parked for them to yeah. go and meet up with it. But he was going to be there once he'd lost the police tail. Yeah. Once he uh, made sure that there were no police tail on him at all. Yeah. He's there. Yeah. Because they're, assu- they're assuming they're there. He's meant to pull up. So if we if we think about it logically over the course of it is they've dumped all of the police surveillance. So there should be no one on him, which is why I think, you know, probably feeds into some of the upcoming minutes where Neil is like getting frust- even more frustrated because he shouldn't have any tail. But if he does, just in the rare chance because he's the driver, they want him mm-hmm. to park in that slot and signify that he's going to be there on time. So right yeah. now what's even cool, I try and take myself back as well. It's, I know it's really difficult for even both of us, but it's like, I don't think I would have registered that this is the big heist that they're doing right now. It doesn't feel like the beginning of a massive heist, but really this is the minute that is the beginning of this huge heist moment. They're just sitting at a cafe yeah. looking pretty casually. And if you weren't really looking at how Neil's fidgeting or how intense Chris is like firing himself up, ready to go, you yeah. would just sort of go, oh, they're just in a cafe. You then yeah. It's only when you start looking at the suits, the urgency... And really, when he propositions Breeden, that you're like, oh, okay, this this is the beginning of uh, this massive arc in the story. Yeah, it's also interesting, like, because I'm sure, like, I, I don't know the exact dates on when this would have, uh, like, originally gone into production. And I have to confess, I've never, I've never watched L.A. Takedown. I've never watched the made-for-TV. Uh, I, you would I always have a lot think of fun. I'm, you would have a lot of fun, I think. I, I've always sort of a uh, imagine i'm gonna watch it at some point but there's a part of me that doesn't want to see a rough draft version of it like there's a part of me that has has just resisted that over the years because uh i like i still like being able to watch it and get sucked into the feeling of it now i sort of feel like having listened to the podcast i have to watch la takedown because (laughs) i've already given over to the uh picking apart of the the bones and stretching, <laughs> just we're just like pulling the muscle and everything apart and seeing like how does this thing work. So I feel like now I have to see that. But uh, this I assume is too close on the heels of even though it's a year after Pulp Fiction came out um, that this would have been already in the in the in the uh, uh, pipeline. Before it, there's no way that this could be in any way responding to Pulp Fiction because there wouldn't be enough time, I don't think. No, maybe not. Um, that's a that's a great point. I hadn't thought about it as sort of a diner scene that was relating to Pulp, but yeah, no, I think they were well into production early. Yeah, early, and like, I and, they were and in part six of me is guessing production in early early '95. And there could be, I'm assuming, a similar scene in L.A. Takedown in a way that it's just a natural thing that you're in L.A. This is the kind of place that people meet up or wait or whatever. Yes. But there is something about the way that this film, the way films are kind of in a conversation, a a, a natural dialogue with one another. And that uh, I know it's been I think it's been you guys have talked a little bit about this, I think. Um, But just the way that that these. like this scene, watching these professionals in this diner are very much the opposite of Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer in the opening of Pulp Fiction. Two Big people time. who on a, on a whim decide to hold a diner uh, uh, up for a, a hostage and, and burglary and whatnot. And the it's interesting. Uh, it takes me back a little bit to, you know, like Mr. Pink and Reservoir Dogs uh, talking about being a professional. Yes. Like, isn't anyone here a fucking professional is kind of the, and (laughs) this movie is really just, it's so interesting how it's not a, this life is not a source. I mean, with the exception, I mean, obviously like Tom Sizemore gets a thrill out of it, but for the most part, the people in this movie are doing, they're doing jobs and they get satisfaction from it. But, um, it's interesting to me. I've wondered, you know, cause this is such a, you tell people about this movie you haven't seen it. It sounds like a very macho movie. Yes. You know, it's a lot of gunfire, a lot of you know, cops and robbers, and it's all dudes. I mean, there there are some strong female characters, but they're very much at the at the supporting edges of the story. You know, definitely. And uh, it, it's almost it's almost hard to imagine a contemporary version of this movie in which the 
two groups are they are in this movie. Um, uh, and yet, I was thinking about this. I'm like, I'm not an especially macho guy. I don't particularly like, uh, you know, movies I think of as like, oh, that's a, you know, like I, it's not a thing that. It's not like I'm Predator. Really just... It's not like Predator. Yeah. Like that's a, like the Predator. Predator is like the quintessential m- macho action movie. Yeah, and I think part of the reason is this is a movie that all of the surface elements of it are macho. Yes, but it's mostly a movie about how these guys feel about all of this. It's a very emotional movie. It's about how sad they all are. <laughs> yes, you know that. Al Pacino is a guy who would make a great dad and a great husband, but he can't. And he's sad about it. Like, yes, uh, not to skip ahead to all the way to the ending, but like <laughs> the last shot of, Pac- of Pacino's face at the end is not a triumphant shot. No. It's he's looking off into the distance and he's sad because he knows he has a whole life that he can um, he could give into it and be maybe there, a, a different version of him would be happy, but he can't. And Neil McCauley. His whole story is that he wants this happy life that he sees other people have, and he can't. And it feels and fake to him. It feels so disingenuous to him. That's what's so beautiful and nuanced about De Niro's performances, Neil, is that he's like, he wants it. And when he's in it, he's like, it's almost like, this isn't me. This is this yeah. is, goes against everything that in my philosophy. It's really funny that you said that, because a great guest who was on the show, um, uh, Mr. Kyle Turner, um, who's a, a, a New York-based writer, uh, for a bunch of different publications, including Paste. And he wrote the other day in a tweet, I spent a lot of time avoiding heat because it looked like macho BS. And the people I knew who liked it in college, I wanted to push into a lake. But heat is beautiful, sad, thoughtful, ruminative melodrama. Yeah. And I think he perfectly nailed that. He also said thank you for to me for making him a convert and this show, um, for getting him on. But it's like, I think that, I think... It that's the that's the kind of the crux of it, really. It's that's that's the whole genesis. Is there really is quite a melodramatic movie when you come under it. And Man himself has been quoted many times to say, "No, it's a drama. This is a mm-hmm. drama about people, about people, yeah. and they just happen that their professions are, you know, very exciting, <laughs> very yeah. exciting. And in many cases, the saddest." the lowest moments that we see any of the characters experience don't have to do with being killed. It, they have to do with being heartbroken or, 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 or unhappy, yes. you know, that the, there are characters who live, who have worse ends than characters who die. And there are characters who die that the death is not the worst thing that happens to them. No. And it really is just like, this is a movie about tough guys, but it's really a movie about unhappy sad guys who don't know how to they don't know how to make a happy life and it's and it doesn't matter whether they are on the good side of things or the bad side of things the cops are as unhappy as the criminals and the criminals don't get any extra happiness from breaking (laughs) the rules no you know so really it really is like um (laughs) and even i mean it's an interesting question to ponder like are there any characters in this movie that you would consider it by the end of the movie that that character uh, is a winner. You know, there's like, re- there's really, there's really not a single winner whatsoever. The only mild winner you might say, just because he's allowed to be alive is yeah. Christian Hellis. He gets to walk away pretty safe and, but he's devastated. He's devastated, but he's alive. He, I think he's, he's alive. I think he's, I think he'd he's rather less have been happy dead. than yeah. Teresa. I think he's, He's less happy than uh, 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 Trejo. I think. <laughs> uh, I I think his ending is is in many ways the saddest ending because where does he go? What does yeah. he do? I mean, it's just the sun rises and sets with her, yeah. and she's like, even See ya. even among even among the minor characters, um, it's hard to ima- It's hard to see where the hope is in this movie. <laughs> You know, like, it's almost like if you want that, you have to go to another movie, you know? <laughs> it's, but I think that's what keeps us, keeps a huge reason is that people go back. It's that rumination. It's like going, you know, we all have our professional or personal obsessions and it's like, and they're trying to balance those two things and find time for, find time for personal fulfillment. It's huge. These are huge things. 
And so when you yeah. go back to this movie over and over again, you just get all of these little samples of these people just trying to balance a life, like trying to make a life. You know, Don Breeden, who we just talked about and who's in an upcoming scene, he's like, he's just trying to balance getting out of jail and and just trying to just put his head down and go back to work. And even that can't work. Like working in a diner, he's being bullied like he's in a jail yard, you know? And, um, and you know, Charlene, they've got the house, they've got all this. And Chris just can't, by impulse, just pisses his money away. You know, he's, he's these, there are all these beautiful contradictions or these beautiful collisions of things where someone genuinely does want to improve. They want, they've got the best support possible. They've got a great wife. And yet they've got, they just stumble into Bud Court's diner and all he wants to do is just take your money and boss you around. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, like, Bud Court is one of, you know, in a movie full of, uh, and what's, does does Bud Court's character have a name? Um, I'll find it. I'm looking to see if he does on here. Uh, I mean, scrolling this movie on IMDb is such a, it's a workout for your thumb. There's just so many, uh, uh, so many names in this. Um, Selenko is his name. Selenko. Selenko. Um, restaurant manager. Selenko. Yeah, he, um, you know, he gets pushed over. You know, <laughs> that's about the worst that happens to him. Yeah, maybe he gets um, out of it okay. He got a kickback yeah. for a short amount of time. I do. It, it is interesting watching this clip now because the thought that occurred to me was like. Uh, that's the character. If I was going to get cast in a movie, in, this, <laughs> in a version of this movie, that would be the character that I would be up for is the, uh, the diner, uh, the restaurant manager who's an asshole. <laughs> I'd be, um, if I was ever an actor such as yourself, I'd just be praying for Schwartz, you know, the guy in Vincent Hanna's team that basically has like one line, gets his arm broken. Like, I want to be that yeah. guy that just stands in the back while Michael T. Williamson and Ted Levine and like, and, and you know, they're, they're doing all the heavy lifting. Um, and Wes Studi just killing it. And I'm just standing in the back sort of looking shocked at everything that Vincent says. That's, that's what I'd be hoping yeah. for. And I, and I think, I mean, it's mostly because, I mean, you're all, it's all, it's a lot to ask for the movie to delve at all into Selenka's life because you're already, Donald Breeden is already, uh, a detour from the main core of the movie. Yes. You know, it's already the movie taking, it's like a beautiful little short story that another movie wouldn't have time for. Yes. Which is we div- – to the point where up until this scene, when you're watching the movie, you don't know why this – why he's in this movie. You know? Yes. Uh, every scene with Donald Breeden prior to this is almost like you've ch- – you could be like, did we hit the rem- – did I change the channel? <laughs> yes. Because you – it's when De Niro recognizes him as a viewer, you go – Oh, he's going to get looped into this somehow. Like, you don't know yet, but like, (laughs) this is the scene where it's signaling to you, dear viewer, those scenes that you've been watching earlier (laughs) where you get to know and have some feeling for this man and his, he's struggling to start a new life and he's not getting a fair shake in this new job. Like, cause he comes into that new job and he's like, I'm a great grill man. He's enthusiastic. He's positive. So we see him as a person who's trying Yes. Uh, it's 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 in some ways it's the it's the movie's maybe the movie's cruelest um, uh, uh, vein is uh, introducing us to a character whom we like, introducing us to his partner whom we like, and see that they have good intentions, and his entire function really is to see all that so that it ultimately can be taken away from us. Yes. And so all of these things, it really is kind of like the second De Niro clocks him, it's a, oh no. And he, this, it's just we don't of, imagine it's going to end with him having bags of cash, you no, know? No, and it, one, one thing that's even more amazing, and I love that you pointed out that spot, was that it's kind of been imperceptible his diner up to this point, the way that it was shot before we were looking into the kitchen through Bud Court. Mm -hmm. There's that one night where he's in a bar that's close by to the restaurant. That's not actually the restaurant or it might be the restaurant where he's sitting in the diner and everything's dark and you can't see it. And so in this moment, right up until De Niro clocks him, you're exactly right. You're like, Oh, this is a new location. We've never been here before, but it is potentially the third time we've actually been in this spot. And so that when he clocks him, exactly. There's this quick second where you go, oh, God, 
Yeah. Oh God. And es- es- especially then seeing Bud, especially then seeing Bud Court give him that we- shit. <laughs> You're like, oh God, here this is this is only going to end one way. Yeah. And now, um, the diner that they were in earlier in the movie with Wengro yes. is that this diner? No, that's the same diner. No, no it's a different diner. Completely different. Because it's nighttime, so I didn't know. Like, uh, uh, I couldn't remember if for some reason this was the place they always go. That would seem sloppy somehow. Yes. Um, Imagine they have either a rotation of <laughs> yeah. L.A. diners that they that has been meticulously almost like an algorithm, like <laughs> we'll go to this one, we'll go to this one, or if they just never go to the same place twice. I I would almost say that the latter. They never go to the yeah. same place twice. They want to know uh, where it is. They want to know the lay of the land, but they probably never go there twice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's – and it's also it's also interesting because we've seen – um, him as this person with a genuine desire to start a clean new life, to sort of make an honest living. We've seen how much he wants it. Yes. And the new thing that we learn in this minute is Neil McCauley sees him and we trust Neil McCauley as a judge of character up to this point. Like, Neil is so disciplined that if Neil sees you and has like a good, you know, he has a good vibe when he says it, like you're writing him Folsom D block house with Toby rush. He says it, even though there's not a, there's no lines that say like, he's a good guy or you can trust him or any of those, but you can tell from the way he says those lines. He's going through a resume. He's like, Oh, he's a good guy. Like how's with yeah. Toby rush Folsom B wing. He's tough. He's done some time. He's done some hard time. He's one of our guys. He's one of our yeah. crew, and, potential. Crew and, member. And I think it's interesting how uh, economical the dialogue is that they didn't feel the need to write, like, uh, anything that said, like, he's a good guy. Or, like, because yeah. it's not necessary. No. It's all there in De Niro's expression. Yes. And it really is, it really is, you know, it's such a, this is such a perfect part for De Niro at that point in his career. In some ways, it's sort of like, uh, this this I feel like in some I feel like this is the best De Niro ever looks in a movie. Like, agree. He's he's in like really good shape uh, because he's still he's that he's peak still got handsomeness, that nine, peak handsomeness yeah, of De Niro. Because he's he's the the Max Cadiness of him has worn <laughs> off. It's just the insanity of being that in shape has worn off to a natural sort of a reasonable. Because I don't like to imagine that Neil McCauley works out. I don't like thinking of him having an exercise routine. I like thinking of Neil Cauley. Neil McCauley, he, I think he eats right and he knows to get in his like 10,000 steps. <laughs> you know, like, like, I don't like the idea of Neil Cauley like in a gym exercising. No, I, I, think, I think he's got like a weird garage and it's very old school where he's, there's, like one, there's like one token weights bench and a few dumbbells that he and the team use only just so that they can still point a rifle well and things like that. It's definitely not, he's not walking into fitness first in LA or, or a virgin active. Um, it's definitely not who he is. I would watch, I would watch, because I, here's the other thing, the reason that I, 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 I something started spinning in my head after I made the, the joke about Disney buying this and making a bunch of heat movies is that right now as we speak um that movie that Scorsese is making for Netflix um yeah, with man. yeah with uh, um which apparently is using a lot of um CGI yes. to make or effects or whatever to to give us younger footage which we've already seen a little of uh, in in um in movies like um, Joy, the the there's clips in there of like like Stanley and Iris era De Niro. Yes, that look. I mean, they look a little strange, but because it's strange to see him in new footage where it's like uh, you know. But um, I would watch a plotless movie uh, once the technology gets to the point where there's no uncanny value. <laughs> about it, I would watch a plotless movie just about. All the different things that Neil, all the different books that Neil McCauley has gotten over the years, uh, yes. because you see when he gets that book of me- about metals because they're going to look at this metal place. That had me thinking that I was like, I wonder how many times 
he has read a book because there's just a reason. Like I imagine for keeping fit at one point he read one book that was like, here's what you do. He clocked the information. He got, he threw the book away. (laughs) You know, like I bet he's read uh, a book a week for his whole life about whatever. (laughs) Like I imagine we don't see that after he has that conversation because he's learning like, like that scene where he's asking, how do you get all this information to Tom Noonan? Yes. He's like genuinely, he never stops learning in this movie. I think in his life. I mean, this is a movie, this is a movie about the day when he finally stops learning, which yes. is and, and, he and follows this, his heart. And and, yeah. th- and this is the scene. This is the scene where he does the most un-Neil McCauley thing imaginable, which is he's already had this job look like it could go pear-shaped in so many mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. And right now it's like the most improvisation he could have is having to ditch yes. a driver. Yeah. which is critically important, and he just mm-hmm. does it. Yeah. And, and that's where you're like, there's been so many times in this podcast, and people who are listening are going to be like, "This, you guys have said this many times, it's like, this is the turning point for Neil. But I don't actually think it's a singular turning point. It's like this set of cumulative turning points for him where he's denying yeah. his instincts or denying the discipline and just goes off and does this thing that's wrong. And in this moment, when he clocks him, he's like... Yes, he did has the backup plan. Yes, he's the right kind of guy to do it. But it's like, I, I, I sometimes imagine like, what, what happens if Don Breeden's mental fortitude right now is that right in that moment is better? And it's like, it's, there's no movie. But at the same time, it's like, does he still go ahead with his job? Do they try and figure it out with three people? That feels like so much more like a cowboy. You know, he is that guy who is like, um, you know, yeah. if you see me doing thrill sick of liquor store hold ups with a Bond and Lewis tattoo on my chest, like he becomes that guy <laughs> in that moment if he if if they go off with three guys. So in this, he's like, you know, he is actually being a thrill seeker. He's you know to to get a, a brand new driver in. That's a thrill seeker move. You have just said something to me that I've never thought of before, and it's right in my wheelhouse, and it was there the whole time in Plainview, <laughs> which is an entirely different way of viewing this movie, which is the way I'm going to think about it the next time I watch it all the way through, <laughs> which is this movie uh, is about the, the, it's about the difference and between improv comedy and sketch comedy. <laughs> Vincent, Hanna, Vincent Hanna is improv comedy, and Neil McCauley is sketch. And when Neil McCauley goes wrong is when he tries to incorporate improv. <laughs> yes. He lives a life where it's like, let's write these jokes out. Let's make sure we introduce <laughs> the premise in the first page. Let's get the game of the scene laid out. Make sure that we got a, a, a solid button at the end of it. You get it all worked out. Let's put it on its feet. Let's rewrite it. Let's rewrite it. Make sure we've got it. And uh, Vincent Hanna could not be more the spirit of improv than he is. He is... Uh, he is a guy who busts through the door, the chickens go running and he is playing it by ear. If you say Phoenix, he starts singing. By the time I get to Phoenix, (laughs) she'll be rising. rising. He is improv. And at the end of this film, uh, one of them sticks to their discipline and wins. If Neil McCauley had sucked true to sketch comedy, he would have gotten away, but he crossed the disciplines. Uh, I, Uh, I, I cannot wait for the people of the UCB in New York City for the just plethora of heat sketches that are going to come to compare oh. sketch comedy and improv comedy over and over again. You've got a you got 170 minutes to unpack and, and build some great sketches there. Yeah, because you're right. It is a moment of improvisation when he decides we're going to... Uh, we, we, we're not going to do the thing as we planned. We're going to play it by ear. We're going to incorporate this new element. We're going to... We're going to yes and the idea yes. of uh, <laughs> this grill man. And yeah, and it's so fascinating when you watch this movie and you see the moments where pivotal mistakes are made. Uh, because once you've – there, because in some cases they're not even – they're not even uh, – it's not even like you watch it once and then you watch it a second time and you see all the mistakes. Sometimes you watch it 20 times and it's on the 21st time that you're like, oh, if they'd just done this, yes, then it all would have worked out. Because, um, And some of them are huge, big moments. But you're right. This is a big moment. This is one of those moments where they're all sitting there. They know it's a bad idea. 
they get a call. Well, that's not in this minute, but like they're about the phone call that is about to happen is going to be the thing that could tell them uh, it's time to like call it. And it's all there in De Niro's body language at the beginning of the shot. He's fidgety. Yes. And it's his inner torment because he knows I should, this is already should be a no. Yes. But he wants this. He wants to do this so that he can, you know, go away and start this new life. It also, it's also interesting because on some level you get the sense that like he wants this life with Amy Brenneman, but you also get the sense. So on some level he knows that let's say they walk away from this score and they go their separate ways. The way he said, that's the smart play right now. Uh, Let's say he takes whatever money he has and he goes away with Amy Brenneman and he doesn't, you know, he starts a new life. Neil's, Neil's any- better set up than anyone in his crew right yeah. now. He's better set up than anyone in his crew. There's no question. I don't, I, there's something in him. I don't, I can't imagine a scenario where he follows through on that life. No, he's retired for a few years and he's back at it. Yeah. There's no and way that he's retired forever. He's not the retired forever guy. Yeah. And I mean part of me wants to imagine a world where he could do this where he means it where he uh is going to do that. Part of me likes to imagine I think the the most optimistic read that you could have of this movie. And I think it's legitimate because we don't know what happens. Yes. Is that Pacino does this and that look at the end is him realizing this is hollow. This brings me no joy. And he's going to go back to his wife and his uh, stepdaughter, and they are going to live a happy life. And he can just casually be a police officer and not be obsessive about it. I mean, you can. That is one reading that in my best <laughs> <Yeah>. mood <laughs> I would like to have. But I, but I think everything in the in – the, every fiber of this movie seems to scratch against that. You know, it seems when you're watching a scene like this, you can see the way it's gotta be even. I don't think I knew when I was watching it the first time. I don't think I knew where it was going. You know, I don't think I, I I, I think the movie throws you off the track. It throws you off the scent on first viewing in so many ways that just keeping up with the, the what's going on. is a big thing. And especially, you know, to, to sort of, foreshadow a couple of minutes is like there's that great moment um with vincent late later on where he's given up mm-hmm. he's given up on the whole thing he's like uh well, yeah. that's it he's gone goes yeah. to the hotel that's it he's gone it's he the, this movie does that for us so many times because we, we've kind of the, the discipline is so ingrained in us that you're like oh neil's gonna go it's done he's got away yeah he's gonna there's be a lot to of away. how's he gonna there's a it's very easy to do. You can do a lot of different fan edits of this movie just by stopping it at various points. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that would be a that would be a great one. They're gone. <laughs> Credits. <laughs> just, and um, the uh, oh, what there is a thing. Uh, just while you're looking I'm, that, I'm, just while you're looking yeah. that up, the 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 great the great fan edit of all time is like you got to stop when you spot the heat coming around the corner. And it's like literally the moment that that Captain Hydration sits down in the truck and makes that noise that flags Neil to the to the police's presence. That that's that's the smash cut ending of the movie. Because if yeah. Neil actually accepted his discipline in that moment, he spotted the heat around the corner. Done. Finished. Yeah. See ya. New town. Um, new life. There's a there's a, a YouTube channel. Um, have you heard of the Walk of Life project? No. Um, this is um. Uh, it's a YouTube channel where uh, somebody uh, uh, it's a W.O.L. project and it's basically um, uh, this guy named uh, Peter Salamone uh, did a thing where he ends movies with uh, the Dire Straits song Walk of Life. <laughs> and uh, and I looked it up and Heat does have um, there is if you look up Heat Ending Walk of Life project, there is an ending where. It lines up so well with, like, The Matrix is a really good one because it has that, like, slow keyboard 
uh, intro. Yes. So you can layer that. You can pick your moment to layer that over the final moments of a movie. And then the crucial thing is where you do that cut to, like, directed <laughs> by Mike Mann or, you know, like um, – and uh, as soon as we're done with that, I'm going to go watch the, the heat. I've seen it before. I had forgotten about it. But uh, um, but it's uh, it's a pretty delightful uh, project that uh, somebody put together. Well, especially for this show, Connor Ratliff. I think that's the perfect place to end this conversation. Because what I'm going to do is instead of our usual outro music... I'm going to outro the show with Dire Straits Walk of Life to end this, the 99th episode of One Heat Minute and slightly freak people out. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the 99th episode of One Heat Minute. Connor, thank you so much for being a part of the show. You've got to come back. Thank you. You've got to come back. We've got, oh, so, we've got so much more to talk about, so we're going to stay in touch and Connor's going to be back. We're on the we're on the downhill slope of this show. Um, this oh, is so sad. It's so sad. Is, you're, going to have to, you're going to have to start over from the... <laughs> You're gonna have to watch it backwards. You I'm know? not watching it backwards. We're just gonna we'll, we'll we'll have to figure something out. But that's it. We're on the downhill slope of the show. We've got so many great guests lined up. We've got so many great episodes. Connor, thank you so much for being a part of the show, guys. Connor Ratliff on the Twitters. You can find him there. That's probably the best spot. Anywhere else they need to go, Connor. Yeah, Connor Connor Ratliff. C O N N O R R A T L I F F. Perfect. That's it. So, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of One Eight Minute. We'll catch you on another episode, the hundredth episode with the inimitable legend Dante Spinotti just around the corner